Welcome to the fourth podcast in our First Peter Sermon Series, Through the Fire. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live-streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley will be continuing our series with a sermon called Communion with God. I hinted at a couple of things that are coming down the pike that I want you to be aware of and just a little more detail. So one of these is our, what we're calling leadership lens. For some reason, the P is in the wrong place, uh, but you can read and figure it out because you have uh, degrees and so forth. So leadership lens is something that the elders have been working on. We hope that it will be out in just a few days. Really, we want to periodically put together a brief document that can help our church help each other understand uh, at least the beginning, a beginning point for these complex issues that we're facing today. And this has been a difficult year in many ways. And one of the ways it's been difficult is at least regionally here, Uh, what has arisen again with racism and injustice and inequities and where do believers fall and what should the church do in response to some of these things. So really basically it boils down to two things you see at the bottom of the screen. Number one, we want to help our church be informed by scripture. What does the Bible say about these issues? Does the Bible say anything? Uh, Well, it does, uh, but we need to be careful in how we read and interpret and apply. So we want to give our church something that gives us a beginning point in understanding these things and these struggles and issues biblically, but also to be transformed by the gospel. So it's not merely knowing more about the Bible. It is how does the Bible inform us and how does our living relationship with with Christ shape us in response to these things that the Bible teaches. Does that make sense? The two go hand in hand. We've got to have both of these. So in the next few days, our first doc is coming out. We're not going to end, I hope, with just one. So in in other issues and other things that we feel like, you know, we really need to address uh, that are complicated, then we'll put out more of these documents in the future. And the second thing that I want to draw, draw our attention to here is uh, our element series. We, we did not have an element this past year. I think the last one we did was on uh, stewardship and using our re- resources uh, wisely and to glorify God. Uh, this is, will be the next uh, element in learning. Really, these are all elements that we're going through uh, different years. We emphasize different elements, but elements of being a disciple. What does it mean to follow Christ? What are the things that uh, if we had to key in a certain elements, certain things, what would they be? And one of those, well, this next one is our new one, and we're calling it Respond. So we want to dig deeper into what does it mean when Scripture says that we need to live in a just way or do justice, okay? So part of it, maybe I think the first half is going to be learning what Scripture says about justice. 
And, and there are a lot of misconceptions. There are some oversimplistic understandings, and there are just outright uh, taking Bible verses out of context that we need to address when it comes to justice and all the, uh, or at least we can't do everything, but we'll do many of the associated issues that arise when trying to understand what justice means and what uh, we are required as believers to do when it comes to doing justice. So we want to look at those, but we also want to get a better, more filled out perspective when it comes to doing justice. Because uh, basically, we're a whole lot alike uh, in, in our church. And we need to hear and bring in some, and, uh, some other voices coming from other perspectives when it comes to a believer who's transformed by the gospel, who really seeks to do justice and has some Q&A and has some time to discuss and has some time to learn together. So I'm very excited. We're putting the curriculum together still. Uh, I think the first half will happen probably later fall and the second half probably after New Year's. And I think that'll be a good pace for us. So I'm looking forward to that. And yes, you heard that it is my birthday. Today is my birthday. It's been a few years since I've had to, and you've had to suffer through with my birthday being on a Sunday morning. There's something, we're all kids here of somebody, right? So most of you had that time where, what do we buy for dad? You know, because dad has, <laughs> what do you give to dad for his birthday? I mean, I've been through this for a few decades now with my dad because he just doesn't need anything else. And it, when you're the parent, you get what you need anyway, right? So it's just, it's so wonderful to have a family like my family that knows just the right thing, and especially this morning for a birthday card for my birthday. So I took a picture of it, and I thought I would share it with you this morning. They know me, and they knew just the right way, can you see? I'm going to just the right way to express their love for me for my birthday. It doesn't even have to say happy birthday on it. It's just the joy of having a bizarre parent, I guess. So, all right. So you're wondering why in the world did I show that to you? Sorry. I don't think, that, that's not offensive, is it, right? We can have fun with that? Okay. You're wondering why, why is he doing this? Okay, so let's move on. Through the Fire, that's the series that we're in in First Peter. Last week, we heard from Peter, last few weeks now, we've heard from Peter in this grand, overarching, uh, visionary, praiseworthy salvation that he talks about that we are established in if you know Jesus as Savior. Believers in Jesus, we are born again. We've been given this secure inheritance that will never fade, that nothing or no one can take away. We can rejoice together even during going through the worst of trials. We have eyes that can see by faith. We're not limited to the circumstances that surround us. We have this joy, as Peter says, that's inexpressible, that goes beyond the stuff of this earth that we have in Jesus, and again, that nothing else can, can take away. And we even have something that angels long to see, that they'll never quite get it the way that a believer in Christ gets it to know salvation, to know redemption. They long to look in, they long to understand, to be a part of that. Oh, if only we could have that. They see everything else, 
They see God in all His glory and His splendor on His throne forever. But there's one thing they lack, and that's the one thing we have. Isn't that awesome? They long to see what we have and honestly sometimes take for granted, right? They long to see it. We have salvation. So now, after this beautiful picture that Peter gives us, we need to take the next step, and we're going to look into, starting at verse 13, what the therefore is therefore. Therefore, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, con- con- conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter uses imperative verbs. They're imperative. You must do certain things as he continues to now build on his his argument, his letter, his message to not just those in Galatia and spread all over the place, but for us today. So we're going to look closely at those imperatives because even as translators work, that's what they do first. They look for that verb that is imperative if it exists in that sentence. They want to hone in on that and then build out everything else from that. So we're going to look back at that first set of verses there, and there are two imperatives that stick out. The first one is set your hope, and the second one I have circled there is to be holy. Those are the things that we cannot miss this morning. Now, we've got to make sure that we're clear on this, and I'm going to repeat this, I'm going to emphasize this every Sunday that we go through this, okay? Oh, that is not what's supposed to be next. But here's what's supposed to be next, okay? Uh, do this and you will live is something that we need to make sure that we're not doing. <laughs> A few weeks ago, we looked at what Jesus said. And uh, if you were here, maybe you remember it. Jesus was speaking to a lawyer, an expert in the law, uh, somebody who knew the law. And Jesus asked him, you know, you know the law and how to find eternal life. What is written there? And he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said what? You know it. Go. Do it and you'll live. And then the lawyer said, but, or, or Luke tells us that the lawyer was thinking but seeking to justify himself. In other words, the lawyer knew that he didn't have enough to be saved, that eternal life still wasn't his that he hadn't done enough yet, right? Jesus didn't say, do that and you'll live. 
in, in order to give him a way to earn his own salvation. If you're reading it like that, you're missing the point, and you're missing the, really the gospel heart of that interaction with that lawyer. Jesus says that to emphasize that he doesn't get the point. He emphasizes that so that this guy begins to even more question, what do I have, and, and how do I know that I'm saved or not? So he can't do that and live, okay? So here's the deal for us. With any letter in the New Testament, whether it's 1 Peter or other epistles, there's always this part of the letter that emphasizes action, things that you're supposed to do, or imperatives that I just mentioned, okay? You know, be holy, like God is holy, for example. Well, how do I do that? And how do I do that better today than I did yesterday? So we cannot fall into the same mistake. Do this and you'll live. Just be better. I'm not gonna preach like that. I'm, not gonna, I'm never gonna teach like that. Just do this more and you'll be saved. It's not in the Bible. Not in there. Original Testament or New Testament, it's not in there. So we can't do that. What will we do? We're going to do this, the things that we're talking about this morning, because you live. All right? That is the main difference. Do this and you will live. Now, doing, just hoping more in God is not going to give you salvation. It's not. And without Christ, it's just going to frustrate you more. Do this and you live is not the answer. But to hope more in Christ because you live, that's the answer. That's where Peter is taking us. That's where we're going. So I'm going to remind you, if we were reading the whole letter, you would get the bigger picture. You'd understand the context far more clearly. But since we're dividing it up every Sunday, we can lose the context. We can lose what is most important. We cannot risk doing that. Every Sunday, I'll remind you, we are talking about doing these things because you have new life in Christ, because you've been born again. So back to the imperatives. When I study, I look for these things. I try to surface them as I study so that everything else can kind of uh, connect into these imperatives. Everything else serves to modify what's going on in that imperative. Setting your hope and to be holy. And really, you see the, maybe you saw, you didn't see anywhere, uh, but I'm going to tell you, the main uh, idea, the theme this morning is communion with God. That's really the title of the sermon. If you look on YouTube or Facebook later, you'll see that. What is so important for Peter is to go from the salvation we have, establish that in our minds, right? to then, okay, how do, then we, how do we then continue in our relationship? And the number one priority is building our relationship with God, communing with God. So this morning really is about building our main relationship with God, and he emphasizes, first of all, to set your hope on him. How do we commune with God? By setting our hope on God. That's where we go first. Number one, our hope, it has to be future-driven and not situation-dependent. Now, we talk about hope in many different ways today, right? It's very subjective. It's very wishful and kind of wishy-washy. Uh, 
For example, and I don't mean to be mean, this may sound mean, I'm not trying to be mean, uh, but just stick with me. So there's a sign in Rosemount. I see it all the time. It's a big, it's a very pretty sign uh, out in a yard and big letters and it says hope, okay? And it was in the newspaper a while ago and uh, someone is trying to send a message that in the midst of these times, we should have hope. We should be hopeful, right? So that's not a bad thing. I'm not poo-pooing, throwing them under the bus or anything like that. I'm just saying that to say this. Every time I look at that sign, I think, hope in what? I mean, hope that the government's gonna get it right uh, with our guidelines or whatever, you know, that they're coming up. Hope that tomorrow is going to somehow be a little bit better than today or there'll be fewer infections or, or hope that I'll just kind of feel better about, I mean, you know what I mean? I'm trying to not overthink things and I know I tend to do that a lot, but I, if you're any, if you're anywhere there with me on that, you look at that and that seems kind of empty because there's nothing else behind the word. And that's so much of our experience today, whether it's a sign in a yard or whether it's some other kind of subjective thing. Oh, I, I hope that the Vikings have a winning record. I hope that they go to the playoffs. I hope that the Vikings go to the Super Bowl. And it's kind of subjective because I have nothing to base that on. Uh, I hope that the twins do well. You know, I, I, I hope in lots of stuff. I hope that a lot of things happen. But it, where does that go? And what is that based on? It's just kind of a feeling. So if we approach our relationship with Christ in a similar fashion, then when tough time, when trials that Peter talks about, when they come, and they will come, what have you got at the end of the word? That's, that's important for us to know where it is we're going with this. So hope isn't just a sign in the yard. Believers don't look back. Well, it happened better in the past, so I hope the past will also happen again in the future. And believers don't look around us at what's going on right now to find some kind of basis of hope. I hope because the government's going to get better. I hope because the numbers are down or whatever. Uh, those may be good things, but they aren't the ultimate thing when it comes to hope. Believers look to the future when we're trying to understand hope. What does he say? Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're talking about a future hope, a hope that is yet to, to come. So in a believer's perspective, hope is a rock-solid foundation, uh, foundational confidence in the knowledge of Christ's future return when the rest of his grace will be shown. So the cross that is standing here right behind me that's a reminder that that was the beginning of the grace of God through Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So his grace, because of the cross, because we believe in him, is present and is presently at work in our lives. But when Christ returns, and we know he will, because scripture reminds us, because the tomb is empty, because eyewitnesses saw him, because he lives in us and he's constantly interceding for us and so on and so forth. We know he lives. And we can have confidence 
that he will return because the presence that is in our hearts will be a present with us physically and we can see him and I hope to even reach out and touch him like Thomas did, like the disciples knew him. He'll come back to be with us and extend the rest of his grace. His kingdom will be finally and fully realized when he returns. Believers hope because we know that's going to happen. And what is wrong and what's twisted and what's unfinished will finally be untwisted, be made right and complete because we know Jesus lives. And Paul also talks about this kind of hope. So when you read hope, you got to read hope in the Bible, you got to read hope that way being that kind of informed of what, what uh, hope is about. I love this passage. It's not on the screen. I'll just read it real quick. Romans 8, when Paul talks about this future glory, like what Peter is talking about. Romans chapter 8, uh, he's talking about creation and sufferings and everything's messed up, okay? And, and all of creation longs, you know, for what we're talking about here for a better time. Uh, verse 20, the creation was subject, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, it's not just us that suffers, everything that God created suffers. It groans, all of it groans together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. You get that? You get the feeling of that? It's not hope. I hope it happens. I sure wish God would do something good. It is hope that it will happen. We can be confident in that. All of the groaning and all of the longing, it will be complete in Christ. Full commitment is the next one versus partial commitment. Back to verse 13, okay? Uh, let's see. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully. And here's the interesting thing. The Greek actually puts fully in a different place. I don't know if it's just bad grammar, a bad English, but the emphasis, and many times word order shows us emphasis, it puts fully first. Fully set your hope. There is an emphasis that I believe is intentional on that. So we could use that in English like that, right? That's not bad grammar. I don't know why nobody translates it like that. But fully, he's emphasizing, fully set your hope in Christ. How do we do that? He says, preparing your minds for action. And the, the Greek is weird, so almost nobody leaves the actual, the, more of a literal translation in there. It's preparing um, or girding up the loins of your mind. Okay, when was the last time? Uh, I'm busy. I'm, I'm busy girding up my loins of my mind. I can't do that right now. No one, no one talks like that. And it's, it's in different places in the Bible uh, it's, uh, it's an idiom. It's from ancient times. If you wore a long robe and you needed to get work done, even the disciples did it when they're fishing, uh, you, if you're going to get wet or if you had to move fast, if you had to run, you wouldn't just you know, risk tripping over your robe. What would you do? You'd pull it up and you'd tuck it into your belt. You'd gird up 
your, your robe into your belt around your waist so you're ready for action, okay? So Peter he borrows that ancient, uh, well, not ancient for him, but ancient for us, idiom to get us thinking about our minds and being prepared for action. It, I don't know what a good equivalent would be today, but I do remember seeing a guy in a marathon running in jeans. I do remember seeing that. And I, I, I'll never forget. I mean, if you've run even a mile in your life ever, or even a quarter mile, and you know, if you tried to do that with jeans on, you, and in the summer when it's warm, you would quickly realize that's a bad idea. I mean, most people would, you know, I wish I had shorts on for this. This is stupid. Why am I doing this? He ran a marathon with jeans on. That is not adequate preparation. I would think he would be bleeding the, you know, the entire length of his legs after that experience. That is not preparing in advance. Gird up. Be, I don't know if it's a good you know, translation or not, but gird up, be prepared, not, phys, not just physically, but with your mind. We need, a, maybe physically and mentally, a resolve to keep pursuing hope. Get ready in advance to pursue and to run unhindered, to move and pursue Christ in an unhindered, no sidetracks, no slowing down, uh, not getting distracted, getting caught up with something else. I say to my kids a lot this, if you're gonna do it, do it like you mean it. Peter is saying this, to the same thing to believers. If you're gonna do it, if you're going to place your hope in Christ, do it like you mean it. Get your mind and continue returning to get your mind each day prepared for whatever it is that lies in front of you. Full commitment, fully committed to that hope, not partial. Number three, conforming only to Christ. Hope requires that. Hope involves that. Verse 13, he mentions being sober-minded. And then again, in verse 14, he says not to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. No, nobody likes to be called ignorant. And he's not being mean there, but before you knew Christ, there were a whole lot of things that have to do with Christ that you were just ignorant of. You didn't know. You didn't know any better. You didn't know what true hope really is about. You were ignorant. So don't keep living like that. You're not ignorant anymore, okay? Because we get... If you're not girding up the mind, if you're not really preparing, what are you going to naturally do? You're going to act like you're ignorant. Don't do that. It's, it's really kind of that simple. Conforming to Christ means you're moving past ignorance. So he talks about being sober-minded. So the, the, the fairly obvious metaphor is alcohol and, and getting drunk, which could keep you from being sober-minded. That could be an issue of ignorance that some of us have. But what he's talking about isn't limited to something like alcohol or alcoholism because he talks about passions of former ignorance. That's just one example when it comes to being sober-minded. So there are other things. In fact, there are, are many ways that believers today can get drunk on passions that have nothing to do with conforming to Christ. For example, it is possible 
for Christians today to get drunk on politics. Okay? It happens. We can get so obsessed and consumed with polls and pundits and, and, and whatever we're picking up online or on social media that can affect our ability to think, not just about politics, but about Christ. And all of a sudden, we're under the influence of what's happening in our nation and the election coming up, and we forget to keep coming back to Christ. What matters most can be politics and not Jesus. Here's another example. Sometimes Christians get drunk on being revelant. If I could only have a church or a church experience that is a certain level of, of expertise, that has a, a certain level of attractiveness, right? Uh, then, if I'm a part of that church, then certainly that's, that's God-blessed, and certainly more people are likely to come to that. We love cool. We love that kind of special, attractive kind of flair that churches can have or churches can kind of devote a lot of stuff, a lot of resources, a lot of people to. Uh, I guess... <laughs> I, I, I really think that Jesus has different plans for his bride, uh, the church, and I think this year is a perfect example of that because a whole lot of that cool, relevant stuff kind of went out the window with COVID and with the fact that we couldn't even meet for a while. And now the way that we meet is different. Maybe Jesus is trying to sober us up. I don't think maybe. I think he is. I think Jesus is trying to sober up his church in the midst of this, getting our attention, bringing our eyes back to him, conforming us to him. A lot of different examples. You get the idea. We can get drunk on lots of stuff, and we can't risk that. And we got to be waking up, being more sober-minded. So that's the beginning. Our thoughts on hope, we're going to move to holiness. But here's what I find, and I found it was very interesting as I studied. Hope and holiness, you can't have one without the other. The two ideas, those two imperatives, are intertwined in this relatively short passage. Uh, the more I studied it, it yeah, there's certain things that are hope-related and, and certain things that aren't, that are more holiness-related. But as, as you read the way he talks about it, you can't have one without the other. I don't know if you thought about it. I didn't think about it like that before. To have hope means you're moving towards holiness. Uh, and to have a greater understanding, greater appreciation for holiness also means I am established in hope. Those two things are working together. So let's get a little bit deeper into the second imperative, holiness. He quotes from the book of Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. And numerous times in the book of Leviticus in the original testament that contains so many of the details of the law that was handed down by God through Moses to the people, right? Many times. There is this emphasis on holiness. Be holy. Be holy as I am holy. Peter references that. Brings, If you know anything about the original testament, you would certainly think of that right away. But he's got a mixed audience of people that are believers in Christ that don't know anything about the law and Moses. Uh, and they're all mixed together in this new thing called the church. So he's trying to teach all of us, whether we have background uh, uh, experience or not, the fact that there is a call from God directly regarding the way that we behave ourselves. To be holy is to be sacred and set apart for God. 
and truly God alone, sacred and set apart for God alone. Not just the original Testament teaches it, Jesus teaches it in the Gospels, and it's all over the New Testament. So what you should be thinking, what I think you're thinking, I'll tell you what I'm thinking, if you're thinking like me, and I know I do, I'd be thinking this, how in the world do I do that? How in the world, if God's the standard for holiness, and I look at my life, and I know what I think about, and I know what I do, and I know what I say, how in the world is he just throwing that out there to frustrate us? No. To be holy is to be sacred and set apart for God. Believer, you are in that category. As someone who's been redeemed and born again, you are also set apart for God alone. And there's no compromise with that. Because to say it's God plus is not God. It's just God. Holiness ought to be a huge issue with us daily as we think about what does it mean to commune with God? How does Jesus teach us to pray? Hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. He wants us, even as we pray, every time we pray, to be thinking again about the holiness of God. And then, in, in conjunction with that, our personal holiness. So we can't look at this and say, oh, I give, I give up. I can't do that. Uh, no, don't do that. He's leading us towards a deeper understanding of what it means for us to be holy in our communion and our fellowship with God. So what does he say? He gives us some reason to be hopeful in this and some actual steps to take. So the first one has to do with this, becoming children of obedience. In verse 14, he says, as obedient children, which may not be the best way to understand what he's saying, because as I read that, verse 14, I think that suggests a moralistic approach. Just little kids, be better today. Just obey better. And uh, maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm confusing you. I hope not. But I think there's a better way to understand it. One of the commentators said, really, the what, what he's trying to express, instead of verse 14 in my translation, as obedient children, he's trying to stress that. Become children of obedience. Because that suggests something else. It says to submit... Are you, are you following me? Submit to a whole new, different way of living. Realize, believer, that you're a kid that needs to grow up in a different way. Well, that's a whole different perspective, isn't it? There's no guilt trip on me, and there really isn't, because we have been redeemed. Jesus has done it all. Now, therefore, because he's done everything, realize you need to grow up in holiness. So take some advice from Peter here and become a child that seeks to live in obedience to Jesus' way and not all these other options. Peter goes on to say in verse 18 that you are ransomed from what? Your futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Or another translation says your useless ways of your ancestors. That has a little more punch to it, right? useless ways of the people that came before you. I don't think their ways were that useless. Well, when it comes to spiritual stuff, if they weren't believers, they were useless. I need to realize I need to grow up and grow away from their ignorance 
of Jesus, to grow into this lifestyle of obedience. So, get, you know, get Peter straight here. He's not slamming on different cultural practices when he talks about useless ways you inherited from your forefathers. That there is room, there's always been room in the body to have and even to celebrate cultural distinctiveness and differences. So he's not saying that. And as well, he's not reintroducing original Testament Moses law and practices. When he says, you shall be holy for I am holy, he leaves it there. He doesn't, in addition to that, by the way, here's a list of laws from Leviticus that you've been screwing up on. And you might want to remind yourself of these because you all stink with all of them and be a better person. But he doesn't do that, does he? He puts out what is most important, really what the main emphasis was for the original Testament. He, he brings that in. He renews it under the gospel in the New Testament but he leaves all the code, laws, all that other stuff in the past. Because even that was part of the ignorant ways of the forefathers. Because they got caught up in that and they thought that was salvation. And it's not. So whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile or you're a Native American or whether you're an African American or you're a European, we've all got cultural distinctiveness. We've all got a past. Whether we understand it or know it or not, that's all there. So the question isn't uh, uh, tearing that all apart, our cultural differences. The question is, are you now as a believer, no matter what your past is, are you going to Jesus' school of holiness? Okay? Are you becoming more obedient? Are you seeing that in Jesus, the better way of life, of lifestyle, of worship, of salvation, are you seeing that as what now defines you in your way, in my way today, in the way that I'm living. It's not the fact that my parents were Scottish or Swedish or English or, or farmers or whatever they did in the past or how were they understood morality because there were some diff, definite firm opinions on morality in my family. Uh, it's not that anymore. It's Jesus. How am I growing in response to what Jesus has done for me how am I hallowing him and understanding more of his holiness for me? Now, that's just scratching the surface on that. That could be a whole other message, book, dissertation, whatever. But I hope it at least gives us a starting point when it comes to being children of obedience. Secondly, remember where your home is. Verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your exile. Exile is a term that Jews are used to and exile is a term that other people groups are familiar with. So, it, But again, it's not just Jews. It's all believers need to realize that we're in exile today. This is not, in other words, this is not our home. America is a pretty great place to be, and I've benefited tremendously by living here, and I'm thankful for that. But it's not my home. What Jesus is coming back to establish, that's my home. And that's what I've got to keep in my vision out there. That's my home coming someday. So there's a tension that is around us and in us all the time. Number one, on the one side, we are to seek the welfare of those around us in the city or in the place that God puts us in. That's what the prophet Jeremiah talks about. So in, in no place and no way can believers say, 
ah, forget you because I've got my passport to heaven and I'm going to, you know, forget about recycling or whatever. I'm going to trash everything and I'm going to trash you too because you don't matter. Uh, you know, that, that kind of, cr- that's ignorance, right? I know nobody around here says that, but sometimes we come across, Christians come across like that, okay? So we've got to guard against that. So you don't do that, all right? We are to seek the welfare of those around us, but at the same time, don't get too cozy. Don't get so much a part of the culture and, or the place that Jesus has sent you into that that's all that matters to you anymore. And if you had to tell the truth, I'm real glad and thankful I'm here and that's enough. Because sometimes that's where we end up too. You'll end up or you run the risk of, of end up ending up loving the place that you're in so much that none of the things of Christ matter anymore. And sometimes I think that's why we have trials and testing to get our attention and to put our eyes back to where our home truly is. One more. And really, it's, everything is saying this anyway, but keep looking to Jesus. Verse 21, 1 Peter chapter 1, it ends in this way. So that your faith and hope are in God. And it's real simple, but it has to be said, not in yourself. The great ongoing struggle that believers have, if we tell the truth, is that we want to place our faith or our trust in somehow, in some fashion, in ourselves. To look to ourselves. That we must be better than, or I've got this under control, or I'll turn to you, Jesus, when I need you, but no thanks right now. I've got a handle on this. Did Jesus take the wheel sometime, other time, but I'm okay driving for the meantime. Okay? Am I better or worse today? Ah, it doesn't matter as long as I'm in control. How do I feel about my hope or my, about my faith right now? Uh, is hope and holiness in, in question because of my struggle or my relative unstruggling? Or maybe not struggling, but I really should be struggling. And how do I gauge my status? Ran across fascinating story uh, this week. I'm going to picture here, the trial picture. There we go. Okay. Uh, That man uh, I'd never heard of before this past week. I'm going to butcher his name. It's a Jewish man, Yehiel Denur, maybe, possibly. He's a Holocaust survivor. This is from a number of years ago. The picture was taken. Uh, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about him. Uh, He survived two years in a death camp. It was a death camp run by the infamous Adolf Eichmann who uh, ran from the law of the world for a number of years before he was finally caught and brought to trial in Israel. And when he was brought to trial, a number of people were brought to testify against him. So he is in the courtroom as Mr. Denur is speaking, is testifying about him. A few years later, in the mid-80s, 60 Minutes, I don't know, is that show still around, 60 Minutes? Uh, Mike Wallace interviewed this man because of what happened in the courtroom as he was testifying against Adolf Eichmann. So all these people brought into the courtroom 
Eichmann is right there in the front row. And they knew him as the butcher. They knew him as the man to be feared, who murdered thousands upon thousands of people. And Mr. Denur walks in feet, just a mere feet from Adolf Eichmann. Imagine being in his shoes and in that moment. So Wallace interviewed him, this man in particular, because of what happened during the trial. When he, I, I believe it's moments after this picture was taken, he fainted, he passed out. And a lot of people assumed, well, it's because of what I was just describing. He's feet away from Eichmann, okay? That would be overwhelming for anyone. The, the post-traumatic stress, every, you know, the memories flooding back. But he told Wallace that wasn't why he passed out. There was something else that took place. And I quote, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. And he passed out. Who, who would think that? Well, he did. He got up in that witness stand and saw Eichmann in his suit, no longer the SS uniform, no longer the guy to be feared. He was just a guy, powerless, in chains, in a court, awaiting his execution. And he looked out at Eichmann as just another guy and said, wait a second. I'm just a guy. If he could do what he did, I could do what I did. And he passed, I could do what he did, and he passed out. It's chilling, isn't it? Now, most of us, yeah, but that's, that's Eichmann. I'm not going to, I wouldn't murder thousands of people. What did Jesus say about murder? If you've thought it, you've done it. It's in your heart to kill. There is something, he's not a believer, but he, he touched on something that we all need to be aware of. As people, ordinary men and women going through this life, we are capable of failure, and in fact, we do fail. So what does Peter do at the end of this passage to make sure that our pursuit of God, our pursuit of hope, our pursuit of holiness isn't based in our own efforts? Because we're just men and women. We're just guys, gals, getting through life, right? What sets us as believers apart? Did you catch how Peter and Paul and other New Testament writers, as they start talking about Jesus, and, and then our response to Jesus, the imperatives, they get back to Jesus. You ever notice that? As they get more excited and more informed about what it is that we get to do because of Jesus, they keep reverting back to praise of Jesus. How, let me fill in the blanks here, okay? How does Peter end this passage we looked at? Just, let, if you have to close your eyes, just hear me read, do that. Let it sink in knowing you knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of christ 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you and me, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are not in yourselves or how much better you can be or do today. Do you catch that? How many times, I'll just tell you, I'll tell you, how many times, I, I can't number, when I pray, I get caught up in my own failures and my own limitations and the ways I've constantly screwed things up. How, God, can you love me? I am such a great failure. If you end there, you're in rough shape. Peter doesn't end there. He keeps coming back to what Jesus did and how he's established in Jesus. Yep, I'm a great failure, but I've got a greater Savior. Don't end with the ways that you've screwed up. End with Jesus. End with that thought that he's ransomed you. He's brought you back. His blood poured out freely for you. My faith is in God, not myself. I have that great of a Savior. No matter where you're at this morning, if you've been in a place or you've been in a lifestyle, if you had to tell the truth, if you're backed up against the wall, you'd have to say, I failed. I've blown it. I've screwed up my relationships. I've rejected things I shouldn't have. I've done things I knew I shouldn't do. That's not the end of the story. It's not the end for you this morning. Jesus is the answer and he's the next page of the story. Place your hope in God. He provides the holiest, the holiness necessary. Obey willingly in the one who ransomed himself for you. Lord Jesus, we return to you in greater, stronger hope believing in you, trusting in you. Lord, we kneel at your feet, longing to become more obedient. Give us hearts and minds that respond in that way. Lord Jesus, do what only you can do. And if there's someone listening or thinking right now that, would ha that says, yep, I've blown it. I've rejected you. Lord Jesus, speak to their hearts right now and reveal yourself and your salvation, and bring them home. Bring them to hope and holiness like they've never known before. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our series in First Peter. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Genesis, Crossroads, Ruth, FaithWorks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.